Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Good morning. I'm not very religious. I'm more spiritual. I'm not in, I'm into Jesus, not into religion. You don't have to be religious to be a Christian. Have you ever heard somebody talk that way? Have you ever talked that way? This type of language has become increasingly common over the past several years. Of course, different people mean different things when they, when they talk this way, and there's probably some measure of truth in what they're saying sometimes. But this is not how the Bible talks. And one day I'm going to give a a different sermon on if your life is filled with asking or answering questions the Bible doesn't mainly ask and answer or talking about subjects the Bible doesn't mainly talk about or if you speak in ways the Bible doesn't mainly speak, you got to pivot a little bit. This is an example. This is not how the Bible talks. There is a kind of religion that's worthless as the the quotes I just gave you imply, but there is also a kind that pleases God. We need to be a religious people, according to James. Religion is good or bad, James tells us, based on its content and its output. Would you remember that? Because that's the thread that goes through this whole thing. Religion, we need to be a religious people, but not just any kind of religion. The kind of religion that is pleasing to God has a certain content and a certain output. In his letter, this letter to, uh, of James, James was mostly concerned with the kind of religious output, not the content that is pleasing to God. And our passage for this morning is no exception. In it, we're giving, given three more charges, three more outputs that God expects from his people. One negative and two positive. Here they are. The kind of religion that pleases God, the good kind, the right kind of religion, does not allow for an unbridled tongue. We'll talk about that. But it does lead to caring for those in society who are most vulnerable. We'll talk about that too. And it does cause us to strive for holiness. To be clear, James has in mind the right kind of religion in the eyes of God. That's the other thing to keep in mind. He has in mind the right kind of religion, not just in anybody's eyes, but in the eyes of God. Not necessarily in terms of what the world thinks of as the right kind of religion, and not even necessarily what the church thinks of as the right kind of religion, but what God thinks of 
as the right kind. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, not religion that the church, the world necessarily recognizes as pure and undefiled. This is an important distinction for the sermon and for all of life. Our aim must always be to honor the one who made us according to his terms. We honor him in the ways he's given us to honor him, not in any way we might think. Sometimes those terms will be well-received, recognized and well-received, and sometimes they will be despised. We're learning church history. Church history is the history of God's word being well-received sometimes and despised at other times. Well-received in some places and despised in others. Either way, whether it's well-received or despised, God alone defines worthy religion. And our text for this morning helps us to understand what that means. So let's pray. Let's pray for God's help that we would have the right kind of religion, the kind that hopes wholly in Jesus and works itself out increasingly in the ways that God has commanded. Let's pray. God, I I thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, as I implied earlier, that it gives us the right questions to ask and the right answers to those questions. It gives us the right thoughts to think, the right things to desire and despise. We're meant to be people filled with love for lovely things and hate for evil things. You tell us what both of those things are and what loving well looks like and what hating well looks like. You don't just tell us, you model it for us. And ultimately in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Truly God and truly man who took on flesh, who was tempted in every way as we were yet, is without sin. We thank you that James's very brother, the one who wrote this, had a first-hand, up-close view of this. Calls us to the kind of religion rooted in Christ and following the example of Christ as Matt had us sing just a little bit ago. I pray that you'd open our eyes further to these which... Maybe our familiar truths to us, but open our eyes further that we would not just be familiar with them, that we would not just hear about them or hear again about them, but that we would be ever increasing God honoring doers of them, that we would have the right kind of religion, the right content and the right output. Help us to take these things in in order that we might live them out for your glory in the power of your spirit, according to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main question James answers in our passage for this morning is not whether or or whether religion is good or bad, but what makes up the right kind of good religion. And his answer, once again, is the religion's content and output. As I mentioned in the introduction, James's whole letter is primarily focused on the kind of outworking that God-pleasing religion has, rather than the specific tenets of that religion. That is not to say that James is entirely without doctrine, much less that he is unconcerned with sound doctrine. It is to say, rather, in this letter, he mostly assumes the sound doctrine that good religion is built upon. If you want, I have a a decent section that I'm not going to give you right here, but it's in the manuscript. You can read it online later of the doctrine of James, the different doctrinal claims that he makes. It's bonus, bonus content. 
So what then, though, is the basic content of the right kind of religion? If good religion has right content and then right output, what is the basic content for James of the right kind of religion? Ultimately, it is the gospel. In his own words, James says this. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Of his own will, God, the Father, brought us forth by the word of truth. That is, we were saved, rescued, redeemed, brought forth out of death and into life by the word of truth, the gospel, the implanted word. In short, it is the good news of Jesus' suffering and death, his resurrection, his salvation, and his power graciously given to God's people through faith. That is the right content of God-honoring religion. Do you want to have the right kind of religion? Say yes. Yes, the kind that is pleasing to God. If so, it begins here. The right content, and the right content is the gospel. Grace, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Every religion that has different content is what James calls worthless. Without worth. Completely absent of worth. This means that without the right religious content, every religious Output is worthless. Do you get that? Those are two really important things for you to take home, put in your pocket, memorize. They sound the same, but they're different. Number one, every other kind of religion, or every other religion based on a different content is worthless, and every output built on a different content or without this content is worthless. This is the constant theme of the Bible. I'm going to give you a few passages. Isaiah 111. This is what is what to me is God God speaking what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices you offer over and over and over various sacrifices for us it's probably not bulls and goats or killing animals or grain offerings of course but we still offer sacrifices and God says what to me is the multitude all of your good works combined what to me is are those things says the lord I have had enough of burnt offerings and of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Psalm 50, verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. What? What do you think you're doing giving me the things that already belong to me with the kinds of hearts that you have, he says to his people. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 10, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, speaking of his Father, but a, but a body... You have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Learn this, Grace. Learn this right now. It has very serious implications. Apart from the right religious content, that is, apart from genuine hope in the gospel, you cannot please God. You cannot, no matter how many times you pray, no matter how many times you come to church, kids, no matter how many times you come to Sunday school or adults to Berea, No matter how many times you help the poor or read your Bible or share the gospel or go to the ends of the earth on a mission trip, you cannot please God. These sacrifices cannot please God 
apart from genuine hope in Christ. In fact, God sees them as refuse. Not even refuse, but worse than refuse. They, they make an outright mockery of God. And let me, let me tell you, give me, let me give you a simple example. Imagine you have a friend, pretty wealthy friend. They have a house in Lake Tahoe. Have you ever been to Lake Tahoe? It's beautiful. One of the most beautiful places around. They have a multi, multi-million dollar home there and they, they offer it to you to go on vacation. You get, you get to go there for a week and see the sights and for free. And you go there and you're cooking dinner and, uh, I didn't think exactly how this might happen, but in this illustration, you knock the grill over. You're cooking dinner on a grill, you knock it over and it burns the whole place down. And you think, whoa, that's not good. Uh, right? But I know, I, I, I got it. I know what I'm gonna do. I, I got this box of nails and I've got some scrap, some scrap lumber and this tool belt. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them to my friends. And, and that's gonna, that's gonna make everything all right. Well, not only would those things, or even all three combined, any of those, or all three of them combined, not only would they fall several million dollars short of actually accounting for your heir, but the fact that you would offer them in that way means one of two things. It means either you have no idea what the house is worth, or you don't really care. Those are the only two options. And if you can see how foolish that would be to offer a, a box of scrap wood and some nails and a tool belt in, in payment for burning down a multi-million dollar house, if you can see how foolish that would be and how futile it would be to make up for what you did in that scenario, you can only begin or you can just begin to understand why our greatest efforts, everything we have, why our greatest effort to try to make up for our sin against God are infinitely more foolish and futile. Because of the staggering cost of our sin, eternal death, we can never hope to pay for them on our own. Our only hope, therefore, is that God would provide a suitable payment for us. The right kind of religion does not try to provide the payment for ourselves. Instead, it humbly receives the perfect provision that God has already made for us in Jesus. So the right kind of religion always begins with the right content. Without it, nothing we do can please God. There is no output that will bring God pleasure. And yet, that is not to say that the right kind of religion is concerned with content only. And that's the main theme in James. Be not hearers only. Don't just receive this good news and even sort of believe it, but don't, but never act on it. It is also, as James increasingly insists upon, right religion is concerned with output, what comes out from what we believe and have received. So what kind of faith in the gospel-driven output marks worthy religion? That's the main point of our passage. That an- the answer to that question is, once again, what James is mostly after in the whole letter, and especially in this passage. That true faith, the right religious content, always eagerly and continually works itself out in loving and sacrificial ways. That's the thrust of this whole message. So I'll say it again. True faith, the right religious content, always eagerly and continually works itself out in loving and sacrificial ways. So far, James has mentioned a bunch. So far, he's mentioned joyful faithfulness through trials. He's mentioned confidently. How's it work? 
How does true religion work itself out? In confidently seeking wisdom from God to live as God means us to. Celebrating humility. Continually fighting sin. Steady trust in the goodness of God. Being quick to listen, slow to anger, and slow to speak. And also in doing what God says, not merely hearing it. Those are all religious outputs that please God when they flow out of genuine faith in Christ. He's going to go on in the rest of the letter to mention many more examples of the right kind of religious output, like impartiality. We don't treat rich people better than poor people or strong people better than weak people. Like impartiality, care for the poor and the hurting, meekness, selflessness, peacemaking, encouragement, generosity, modesty, patience, integrity, prayerfulness, participation in the local church, and an eagerness to confess our sins to others and forgive their sins against us. These are the types of religious output he's going to go on to prescribe and command. Well, here in verses 26 and 27, mentions three more. Again, I mentioned this in the introduction. A bridled tongue, care for the vulnerable, and holiness in our lives. Let's let's consider each of these. The bridled tongue. I asked Krista to read 19 to 27, not just 26 and 27, because I wanted all of you to see that 26 and 27 is a continuation of one larger thought. Mainly, it's a continuation of the charge to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only but it is also a continuation of the charge to live out our faith by guarding our mouths. In verse 19, again, we were there a little while ago, James commanded his readers, he said, let every person be slow to speak, quick to listen. He'll return to this theme for most of chapter 3. If you want to read read ahead, he goes into a significant amount of depth in chapter 3 about what it looks like to truly bridle your tongue or to take your speech seriously. And in our passage, James simply but emphatically states, it's on the screen, if anyone thinks he is religious, has the right kind of religion, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. Clearly, this is an important theme for James and a key aspect of the right kind of religion. So if we're to faithfully obey this charge, or any charge, we need to make sure we've been good hearers, that we rightly understand what it means. What did James mean by bridling our tongues? And why does a failure to do so indicate that our claims to have right religion are wrong? I wonder how many of you have spent uh, any measure of time around horses. You don't need to spend a lot of time around them to know to understand what I'm about to say, but if you do spend a lot of time around them, you know this on a different level. You know how unbelievably strong and powerful a horse is. It's really amazing. In fact, everyone that I know that does spend time around horses has found this out, either with a kick or being tossed. Uh, One of the most seared memories on my brain, this is part of why I don't like horses, is, is we were riding, you know, these presumably totally docile horses in the mountains on a family vacation, uh, in, in the Smoky Mountains, and the guide, all of a sudden, his horse gets spooked and just decides it's gone. Well, that's bad, right? But it was worse because the guy's foot got stuck in the what stirrup. 
And so the horse is dragging. This is a big, you know, cowboy dude. And the horse is just dragging him in the mountains. I'm thinking, how does this end? Well, fortunately, about 100 feet later, the horse decided it was done running. Maybe too much exertion or something. I don't know. But it was nothing the guy did. The horse on its own decided to start and stop. And there was nothing outside of that horse that was going to slow it down. Well, for those of you who don't know, a bridle, and I looked this up, I'm a, I, I didn't know what a bridle was. For those who don't know, a bridle is a tool used to harness, to control that power. It usually contains a, a, a harness that goes over the horse's head. This is Wikipedia. Uh, a harness that goes over the horse's head, a bit that goes in the horse's mouth, and reins. It's all three pieces is a, is a bridle, I guess. And reins that the rider holds on to. And, and if, you know, you we all sort of know what this looks like. And you look at it and you think, that's not much, right? I mean, it's light and just this little little thing. Well, rightly, you don't say installed, rightly put on, uh, rightly put on a horse. <laughs> My research was mostly limited to the Word of God, not this stuff. <laughs> but but rightly put a it's not applied. It's not installed. Rightly used. There we go. Thanks, Daniel. Right, rightly used. It it can control this this animal, though. It, it can just with the slightest pressure in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing with it. Anyway, you can take this this magnificently powerful animal and make it go where you want it to go, and start when you want it to start, and stop when you want it to stop. It's pretty awesome. But here's the thing. This this is nothing compared to the the strength of the horse or even the rider. But again, with the bridle, even a small amount of pressure controls this thing that in other ways is uncontrollable. So the Bible's consistent picture of the tongue is as even more unwieldy and powerful than the most powerful unbroken horse. If you read the Proverbs, you'll see this everywhere. If you read James, you see it in at least the three places I mentioned. But it's all over in the Bible. The tongue, the the mouth, our our words, our speech is even more powerful and unwieldy than the most powerful and unbroken horse. In chapter 3, James likens it to a ship's rudder. I mean, you picture this massive, massive ship and this tiny little thing that can control the whole thing. Or he also likens it to a, a little fire. You know, you have a little campfire that has the potential to set whole forests ablaze. The tongue is like that. And his point is that our speech, like a rudder or a small fire or a bridle, are able to do far more damage than their size suggests. They're able to they're way more powerful than the little stature suggests. For those reasons, our tongues, our mouths need to be bridled to keep their power from causing significant harm. Who among us, think about this, who among us has not been deeply, deeply wounded by an unbridled tongue? Who among us hasn't caused deep wounds by an unbridled tongue? The Bible lists many types of speech that fall into this category. I'm going to give you a list. And and then in a few minutes, I'm going to give you the opposite list. And I want you to ask yourself, Which types of speech, two lists, which of these two lists most describes how you talk, what your words are characterized by? So here's a list of, how many? Twelve twelve things the Bible talks about as types of unbridled speech. 
blasphemy, evil, gossip. I said 12, but this one has five all by itself. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscenity, lying, defiling, corrupting, harshness, foolishness, filthiness, and crude joking, death-producing, careless, rash, hasty, and irreverent babble. Now, James doesn't say much about what it actually means to bridle our tongues away from these things, about how we might keep ourselves from talking in those ways. His main point is simply that people who constantly speak like this, who regularly have those types of speech coming out of their mouths, while claiming to be religious and deceive themselves. You're lying to yourself. You're, you're tricking yourself into believing that. Far from being worthy, he says, their religion is worthless. Now, that's a pretty severe assessment. Some of you are thinking, oh, no, <laughs> you should be. But why is that? Why such a severe assessment? Well, Puritan pastor Thomas Manton says, it's because there is such a quick interchange between your mouth and your heart. Okay, here's what Jesus says. Here's how Jesus says the same thing. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A person with worthy religion, with a heart captured by God, will not long tolerate the kind of heart that produces this kind of speech. Your speech is directly tied to your heart. That's why. That's why to speak in these ways, to have an unbridled tongue, to let what flow out of your mouth be the things I just read, is the sign of a worthless religion, is because really what that is, is it's an indication of the state of your heart. A person with worthy religion, a heart captured by God, will not long tolerate the kind of heart that produces that kind of speech. They will quickly seek to bridle it. Well, with the help of the Holy Spirit, then, godly men and women will fit themselves with harness, bit, and reins. They will seek partnerships, partnership and accountability from brothers and sisters in Christ. They will carefully meditate on the Word of God as it speaks to the words of men. And they will steer their hearts towards speech that is filled with praise and worship, prayer, thanksgiving, blessing of others and our Lord evangelism, speaking the good news to the lost, building people up, fitting, gracious, salty, life-giving instead of life-taking, healing, filled with knowledge and commending knowledge to others, true and loving. And so we must ask ourselves again, Grace, which set of words most characterize you, your speech? And what does that say about your religion? Whatever your answer, whichever list best describes your normal speech, whichever your answer, your next steps are the same. What do I mean by that? Whether you are not a Christian, or are a Christian who struggles to speak wrongly, or a Christian who speaks in mostly God-honoring ways, number one, trust in Jesus. It's his worthiness, not yours, that makes your religion worthy. And second, bridle your tongue. It's the same two steps. No matter where you are in this, trust in Jesus, not yourself, and bridle your tongue. All right, that leads to the second thing. That, that, if that's what makes worthless religion, the next two talk about what make worthy religion. 
We must not content ourselves, Grace, with merely avoiding the things God has prohibited. We also need to give ourselves to the things that he has commanded. James' second mark of worthy religion is deep care for the vulnerable, the most vulnerable among us. He says religion that is pure and undefiled, worthless religion, has an unbridled tongue. Religion, though, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Some time ago, I preached on this passage for Orphan Sunday, and I presented in that sermon a simple four-part argument, four, four, four clauses in a con- or three clauses in a conclusion concerning the way that God's Word presents care for the vulnerable. I still believe it with all my heart. Here it is. Three, three premises and a conclusion. Number one, God is great beyond measure. Think about that. God is great beyond measure. Whether, you know, I've got like a, a 16-foot tape measure and a 25-foot tape measure, and sometimes those just aren't enough to measure whatever I'm working on. <clears throat> Imagine having a 10 million mile tape measure. It still would not even be close to long enough to measure the greatness of God. God is great beyond measure. Premise number two, all of God's greatness, all of it, all of it, this no tape measure is big enough to measure greatness, all of it is directed toward the cause of the widow and the fatherless, to the vulnerable. Number three, God commands his people to join him in the cause of the vulnerable. So, number one, God is great beyond measure. Number two, all of that is directed towards the cause of the vulnerable. Number three, God commands his people to join him in that. And lastly, four, God's greatness is directed toward the cause of the vulnerable, and he commands his people to join him in it, ultimately because, or therefore, because it provides the world with a living picture of the gospel. Why is this so tied to pure and God-honoring religion, care, care for the vulnerable? The answer is because it's a living picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the gospel and that each of these points highlights in the physical realm what is even more fully true in the spiritual realm. God is great beyond measure and all that he has made and all that he has revealed to us and in the highest heavens. God is great beyond measure, and all of his greatness is directed toward the sinner who is more vulnerable spiritually than anyone has ever been physically. You get that, Grace? This is a big deal. Why, why would we care about vulnerable orphans and widows like the Bible talks about? And the answer is we are spiritual orphans and widows. All of the greatness of God is directed toward sinners who are even more vulnerable than anyone has ever been physically. And that is why he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to pay for the sins of all who would receive him. And so the remarkableness of this biblical argument is its truly hard to overstate. James's main point here, get this, Grace. You want worthy religion? You say, yes, Pastor Dave, here it is. James's main point here is that truly godly people, genuine Christians, those whose religion is worthy, are those who have come to recognize that they were once spiritual orphans and widows, rescued only by the grace of God. And having recognized our own undeserving undeserving rescue, we are eager to give ourselves to the rescue of others, equally undeserving, both physically and spiritually. To fail to do so, to fail to care about this, just like it's not really about your words, it's about 
what comes about the fact that they reveal your heart in the same way. The real issue here is that to fail to care for the vulnerable is to have a religion that believes you deserve God's grace. To, to fail to care for the most vulnerable among us is to believe is in your religion to believe you deserve to be saved by God, and that is worthless religion indeed. And so, Grace, in the name of Jesus, let us give ourselves to the cause of the vulnerable in light of the fact that we have been rescued by God from greater vulnerability. Let us love and serve the most helpless as God loves and serves us in our spiritual helplessness. Practically, what does this mean? Ask our Together for Good coordinators to give you some specific ways to care for vulnerable families. Ask Jen Blevins to connect with Jen Blevins about how to... Uh, work with global fingerprints to help those who are particularly vulnerable in Haiti. Ask our deacons if they know of an older woman or a vulnerable family or a needy family at Grace or in this community that you can care for specifically. Let us be doers of the word of God in this and in every area. Don't don't leave without some simple plan to care for the vulnerable. Here's here's the last one, holiness. James describes a third aspect of worthy religion. Bridle your tongue, care for the most vulnerable because you were most, bridle your tongue because it's an indicator of your heart, care for the most vulnerable because it's a living picture of the gospel, and finally, be holy. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Like worthy religion in general, it is not up to us to decide what it means to be unstained by the world, or to be holy. That is for God alone to determine. Therefore, if we are to know what genuine holiness looks like, not just what seems holy, or what someone told you, or you heard in a song, or saw in a movie, or something, or read in a book, but if you were to know what genuine holiness looks like, it will be because you are familiar with the rest of James, and the rest of the Bible, and ultimately with God himself. What they have to say, and what they had to model. On this matter. In short, being unstained from the world or holy means being conformed to the very nature of God. (laughs) This is awesome. The very nature of God. God is truth, so holiness speaks that which is true and does not lie. It's rooted in God's very nature. God is life, so holiness seeks to make things flourish and does not murder. God is good. So holiness always walks in the light and flees from the darkness. God is love. So holiness is a continual pursuit of that which is best. God is beautiful. So holiness is drawn to true beauty and despises charm and immodesty. The world, in the sense that James means it here, is everything that is opposed to that. It is shorthand for every view of life that is opposed to the nature and will of God. It does not mean that physical things are bad in and of themselves, or that everything we encounter outside of the church is evil. That's not what it means. But it does mean that we need to be careful to develop a truly comprehensive Christian view of everything, of the whole world, as God has revealed it to us, both in order to know how to think and feel and live rightly, and also to know how to be quick to recognize thoughts, feelings, and actions that are not right. Wrongly understood, 
This might seem as if James is demanding immediate perfection from everyone who calls himself a Christian. This view has led some then to go after holiness in a manner that is entirely exhausting because you cannot get there in this life. And it has led others to quit before they even started because they know already they can't do it. They'll always fall short. That's how this is wrongly understood. Rightly understood, it is a call to acknowledge the right standard of holiness. It is a call to pursue it at all times in the power that God provides. It is a call to recognize that by God's design, we won't fully achieve it until we die or Christ returns. And it is a call to sing amazing grace in light of the fact that lacking our own true holiness, we are now forgiven and justified and adopted and loved by God on the basis of what Christ did for us. That's awesome. One commentator that I read this week said it better than I can. It is not our perfection, our our perfectly having achieved holiness in this life. It is not our perfection that proves our salvation, but rather our hating our imperfections and seeking with God's help and power to correct them. In his inmost heart, I'm continuing to quote, in his inmost heart, the genuine Christian longs to speak and do only those things that are pure, holy, loving, honest, truthful, and upright. Practically, again, I want to get really practical. What does this mean? Study God's word on your own and with the help of God's people. You cannot be truly holy if you do not know the God of holiness. And you cannot know the God of holiness with certainty and clarity apart from what he has revealed to us in his word. Come to Berea. It's almost full, but we'll find room. Or we'll sit on the floor or something. But come to Berea. Bring your kids to Sunday school. Lean way into the exhortations and sermons. Memorize chunks of the Bible. I loved Kyle's example of that when he preached a couple weeks ago. Hide the nature and promises of God in your heart. Learn from God who he is and what he has called you to and what he has done for you. Surround yourself with people who are doing the same. Regularly ask those people to help you see where you're walking in holiness. It's not, it's not meant to be a purely or even mainly individual, isolated endeavor. Ask godly people to help you see where you're walking in holiness and where you are not. Pray earnestly and solicit others to pray with you for the Holy Spirit to shine the Word of God and the counsel of other godly people brightly on your soul. That you might see where you continue to sin and fall short of God's glory. In short, through God's word, with the help of his spirit and his people, learn to love what God loves. Spend most of your time seeing what is good and beautiful and true and asking God to give you an appetite exclusively for those things. And only secondly then, learn learn to hate what's left. Everything everything else where you find where you find true holiness in you praise god for that it is his gift and where you find a lack of appetite for that confess it to god as sin repent and remember the gospel so pure religion bridles the tongue cares for the vulnerable and continually pursues holiness so in conclusion i invite you to notice the 
the subtle f- phrase towards the end of our passage, before God the Father, before God the Father, two, two quick things in conclusion. First, everything we do, everything you do, whether in the name of religion or not, whether done worthily or unworthily, whether in public or private, whether outwardly or inwardly, everything we do is done before God. Kids, remember that. Everything you do is seen by God. Every thought you think is God is aware of. Every feeling you've felt, every word you utter, everything you fail to do is known by God. It means that there's no faking it when it comes to religion. We might be able to put a convincing show on for other people, but God always knows. Okay, now that's a serious matter. That's a big deal. But it is not meant to cause us to live in Christ in a perpetual state of nervousness. It is rather meant to help us to see that, see the seriousness of godly living. It is not something you accidentally stumble into. It's serious. We have to go after it. But also, it's meant to help us see the glory of the gospel. Since God knows all of that. In fact, he knows more about you than you do. <laughs> he sees all that you see and all the rest that you don't yet see about yourself. Grace, hear this. You need to hear this. Since God knows all of that, all that you know and more, it is right to be ever vigilant. But since God knows all of that and still loves you in Christ, it is right to walk in the light of acceptance and freedom that the gospel provides. That's the first thing to see. He sees all of it. It's always before God. All of your religion is before God. So walk in the seriousness that that calls you to, but also walk in the freedom in the knowledge that He knows all of that and sent Christ anyway. The second thing to consider in closing is that for those whose hope is in Jesus, God's main disposition towards you as you work out your religion, as you work out your faith with fear and trembling, is that of a father. It is that of a father. God's people are meant to pursue godliness and the knowledge that they are doing so alongside and with and in the arms of a loving, helping, good, strong, merciful, and gracious Father. This is sweet news indeed. Go after the right kind of religion, but do so in the knowledge that it is in the kind of rest and protection and strength a good Father alone can provide. So, we're called to be a religious people, but not just any religion will do. The only kind that is pleasing to God that is worthy, that is not worth less, is rooted in the gospel, right content, and continually works out in obedience to God, right output. In particular, in this passage, James gives us three outputs that he intended his readers to focus on in light of their salvation in Jesus. Bridled tongues, care for the vulnerable, and personal holiness. May we hear these charges clearly and obey them swiftly together, Grace Church. In light of the gospel, with the Spirit's power, for the glory of God, the good of our souls, the good of this church, and as a blessing to the ends of the earth.